Hello and welcome back. I'm in conversation today with Brad Palumbo. Brad, thank you for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. Now, Brad is a journalist. You write for the Washington Examiner. You are also, I think, the editor in charge of FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education's Output. And you've also just started up a rather successful new podcast. Um, what's it called? My podcast is Breaking Boundaries with Brad Palumbo on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. And I, I'm flattered you call it successful. We'll be having Senator Rand Paul in our next episode. So people should check that out, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Normally when people start a podcast, they start with whoever they can find and work their way up. You started with Rand Paul, which is about the highest pinnacle you could you can start with so well done you fantastic um, now brad you no surprise given the flag on the wall behind you um like me no surprise given the books on my bookshelf behind me you're a lover of liberty a, a lover of the free market in, in the uk we would say you were a classical liberal i think in america you would probably avoid the word liberal because of the connotations you would say you were a a, a supporter of the founding principles of the American Republic, of, of freedom and liberty. It's not a great time for us folk on either side of the Atlantic, is it? No, we're not very popular. I would probably describe myself as a small L libertarian, classical conservative with the kind of classical liberal background. Uh, and it's not a great time, frankly, uh, especially in US politics, because we've got the kind of populism left and right that is basically on one hand, you've got Bernie Sanders and the socialists uh, who reject just about everything we believe in. And then you have a Republican party who's not as committed to classical liberal uh, freedom-based free market values as it once was during the Tea Party movement. So it, it's a great time to be on the front line of the battle for ideas like you and I are, is, but it's not there, the best time politically. Is there any, candidate, I don't just mean presidential candidate, but any candidate you can think of standing for election in November in America that's offering more liberty, more freedom, more free market? Oh yeah, there are lots of Republican candidates who are offering that, but they are, so I could think of some congressional candidates you've got uh, for Congress, Nancy, Nancy Mace in South Carolina is strong classical liberal conservative. You've got Nick Freitas running for Congress in Virginia. Uh, then you have members of the House like Thomas Massey, who are strong on those values, who are up for re-election. And then you have Senator Rand Paul and Mike Lee. I don't think they're up for re-election this time, but they're still big figures in our politics. So we still have some icons and, and people of power that represent those values. It's just that, that the, the momentum is not exactly in our favor, broadly speaking. Because in the past, if you look backwards in Britain and America, you could always count on there being a certain number of people in the Democrat Party or in, in the UK, the Labour Party, who would be sympathetic towards the free market. Under Tony Blair, um, there was, a, even for a left-wing party, there were people under Blair, including Blair himself, who were pro the free market. And then on the centre-right, ever since what you might call the, the, the Thatcher-Reagan ascendancy, you could count on the centre-right parties in Britain and America defaulting to a free market position. But you can't do that now. What's changed? The Democrat Party has sprinted far to the left in America. So the, the Republican Party has changed in a lot of ways, but its policy views haven't shifted a ton outside of a few issue areas like trade. Mm -hmm. um, but if you actually look at the like facts, like polling and statistics, you can see that in the last 10 years, the Democrat Party has sprinted to the far left 
And so now there are only a few rare Democrats. Like I can think of Joe Manchin, a senator from West Virginia. I can think of Kristen Sinema, a senator from Arizona. But most of them have gone either solid left or far left. So for example, uh, Hillary Clinton in 2016 ran on a spending amount that, and then Joe Biden's running on a spending amount 10 times that just four years later. She ran against a $15 minimum wage nationally. He ran in favor of it. So we've seen a big sprint to the left on the Democratic Party away from markets and towards more government and more comfortability with socialism. So, so Biden is offering, I, I know you've done some numbers on this, Biden is offering a left-wing political agenda that is going to cost Americans in terms of what? Higher taxes, less growth, less jobs. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? You've, you've got some numbers. Sure. Yes. Yeah, so just, just Biden be? A couple big things that he wants to do. $11 trillion in new spending. Like I said, that's a big leap up from even Hillary Clinton, who was left of center, a liberal Democrat. That's roughly 10 times what she ran on, eight times. I don't know the exact figure. It's a lot more. Mm -hmm. uh, he's also running on a $15 minimum wage, which a study just showed would destroy 2 million jobs. Particularly in areas, for example, in, in the South, where wages tend right. to be lower. It, it, would, it would create yeah. high unemployment in those areas. Especially right now with the coronavirus pandemic, businesses are already cash strapped and on the verb of, verge of, of bankruptcy in many cases. So the federal minimum wage is $7.25. To literally double it would, would send labor costs skyrocketing at the worst possible time. Mm -hmm. So that from Joe Biden is one really bad policy. Uh, he's also run on kind of a vague, big government regulatory agenda that, that he wants to reinstate broad swaths of regulations across the environment, across healthcare, across labor, and all taken together, those would, a new Stanford study showed, uh, take $6,500 off median household income over the, the course of the next 10 years. So that's some serious thing. And then one final thing that flies under the radar with Joe Biden's economic agenda is that he supports laws effectively outlawing the gig economy. So Uber drivers, freelance journalists, freelance photographers, you're all out of luck if Joe Biden wins and gets his way. The, 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 the very productive advantages and gains that the digital revolution has given us, um, he would try to try to undo. That's extraordinary. When I was growing up, there was one American place name that stood out above any other as epitomizing the American dream, epitomizing a sense of can-do, of uh, entrepreneurship and of innovation. And that word was California. California was always oh, a, a shorthand for this incredible American success. But when I look at California now, it's a basket case. Is, is California going to be the role model that the rest of America follows? Or do you think that actually California is on its own? Actually, the rest of America can be more like, I don't know, Texas or, or, or Florida. Um, which way is it going to go? Well, that's the great thing about the American system is our federalist system of 50 states is like 50 little laboratories of democracy. So we can see what works and see what doesn't. California has given us a great, a perfect A plus example of what does not work. I mean, so for example, the gig economy legislation that they passed in the name of workers' rights literally destroyed millions of people's livelihoods. And it prompted Uber and Lyft to say, we're leaving, we're shutting down in California 
if now they might end up staying if a ballot referendum passes in November, basically undoing the law. But if that doesn't happen, they're out and they're going to take millions of jobs with them, millions and millions of dollars of economic activity. We've also got sky high tax rates in California that are pushing wealth out of the state. Millionaires and entrepreneurs and business owners are just packing up and leaving because at the same time that they're raising taxes, they're also not even enforcing the rule of law, right? They allowed riots and looting and it's a disaster zone, frankly, and they've got such a head start. They have beautiful land and beautiful weather and beautiful resources and people, oh, very talented people, and they're, they're ruining it all it's, with big it's, government. It's, it's such a shame. About 10 years ago, I was invited to um, a, a fundraising event for um, a Republican congressman in California, and I, I was asked to say a few words, and I, I remember talking to some of the people in the crowd, and it felt like it felt like the most entrepreneurial, innovative people from around the planet had assembled together because everyone was talking about a business they were starting up or something they were doing or some project they were working on. And they were from all over. There were guys there from the Philippines, people there from, 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 from Iraq, people there from India, people there from, from Massachusetts, people from all over. And it's such a shame to think that that part of America that could attract all that human ingenuity and talent and capital has forgotten the secret of the secret the secret source that made California great and I, I, I think it's, it's it's very sad which states do you think have got it right which states we hear a bit about South Dakota because um, there's an amazing governor there Kirsty Noem who's been wonderful in 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 the COVID crisis are there mm. other states in America that are doing things on the economic front that you think mean that they're going to pick up the baton of, of innovation that California's dropped? Well, you don't really have to guess. You can just look at where people are moving. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, the numbers show that people are leaving California and they're moving to states like Texas. They're moving to states like North Carolina. Mm-hmm. They're moving to states like Florida. Mm-hmm. And, and those are all red states with Republican governors, but there's also some blue states with Democratic governors that are, are just not as bad. So, for example, Colorado is run by Democrats, but they're more reasonable than California Democrats by a lot. So a lot of people are moving to Denver. It's a very attractive city that's fairly well managed. Um, And so that's where people are going. They're going to places with lower taxes where regulations aren't throttling the chance of starting a new business uh, and where they know that they'll be. um, Another one is New Hampshire. New Hampshire is great. They have no income tax at all, no sales tax. Uh, and very limited, they have a property tax and very limited taxes and regulations. They've also and, got the best slogan for any state in America. What is it? Live, live, live free or die. <laughs> live free or die. Uh, and so New Hampshire is seeing an influx of businesses and people moving there. And so that stuff tells you, I mean, people are voting with their feet. Oh, we just have to hope that they don't go to these places and then elect the same old bad politics and policies that ruin their old state. Yeah. Um, a quick quick diversion, if we may, into the COVID crisis. I mean, sure. I, I think on both sides of the Atlantic, we've seen some extraordinary restrictions imposed. And, you know, in, in, to give you an example, here in the UK, these restrictions now mean, for example, that in Wales, which is a part of the UK, it's um, uh, uh, probably about the size of Massachusetts. Um, recently, it was announced that you can no longer lawfully buy non-essential goods in shops there. Um, so, you know, um, and just before we started having this conversation, I was responding to a tweet from a Welsh politician where they were saying that 
now that supermarkets have been banned from selling non-essential goods, everyone should be banned from selling non-essential goods. Presumably they've worked out that Amazon is now going to meet the soaring demand for, for, for buying products that are deemed non-essential. We've also seen in this country, you know, free school meals, which were always available for people who had who very low incomes and, and children they couldn't feed uh, properly at school. The program for free school meals now extended to the holiday time. So it's, it's not just that the state provides free school meals in the classroom, they're now providing what you might call free home meals, that they're literally taking over the job of parenting those households. Are you surprised looking at some of the draconian regulations, how easy it's been for societies that we thought of as liberal democracies to flip like this? Well, with no disrespect to the United Kingdom, I'm less surprised about you guys because I mean, in, I've seen some, you guys just don't have the same free speech and kind of culture of, of liberty, unfortunately, that we do here in the United States. I am very surprised to see people putting up with some of the crazy restrictions we've had here. I mean, I think the coronavirus is a serious deal. I think people should go around and be cautious and take restrictions. But the idea that the government's going to decide who is, is whose income and livelihood is essential and whose is not, the idea that they're going to shut down your schools, even though there's no science supporting schools as a, a dangerous hotspot during coronavirus, uh, it's really overreach. It's, it's quite bad. I mean, in Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer banned people from gardening outside their own homes in their lawns. Uh, and, and so it's gone really far. And I think people, it's, it's disturbing to me, but there is this, this element of the human psyche where in times of crisis, people are willing to sacrifice liberty. But that comes back to bite us, unfortunately, all the time. I, I think there's a lot of truth in what you say. You know, I look at some of the overreaction of governments and officials in America, in, in Europe, in the UK, in Australia. And quite often you have the same phenomenon of official overreach. But what I find so heartening about the United States is because of the sort of foundational settlement, because of the underlying constitutional guarantees of liberty, people have, officials have not been able to get away with what they've got away with in for example, Australia. There are parts of Australia where I've got family where they've been under de facto house arrest for, for, for weeks. Um, and I, I, crazy. I, I think actually in a weird way, what we're seeing is an advertisement for the American system for having you know, an enshrined bill of rights. So you can, you, know, you, can take, you can take a politician to court and get them to allow you to go about freely. I, I think it's a great advertisement for the American system. Um, tech. America has mm -hmm. produced this extraordinary digital revolution and we see digital giants now dominating the global economy that simply didn't exist uh, a decade or two ago. Um, it's also bringing forward some, some, some concerns. When I, when I wrote a book in 2012 about the digital revolution, I, I, I suggested that the digital economy would mean that opinion forming was democratized. But weirdly, we see the opposite now. We're starting to see the Brahmins at the apex of the digital economy banning people from articulating points of view that they don't agree with. And it, it's not just individuals they're banning. I, I gather there was a case recently where a respectable New York newspaper, which I think had been around since it was founded by Alexander Hamilton, wasn't allowed access to its account having sent out a tweet that the people who run Twitter disapprove of. What, what's going on there? 
Right. I think you're right about uh, big tech and social media originally acting as a democratizing force for the free flow of information. I mean, people like me have amassed a, a sizable voice, but people much bigger than me have amassed millions of YouTube followers or millions of Facebook followers. It's only a matter of time, Brad. It's only a matter of time. <laughs> I'll get banned eventually, I know. Uh, but, but people have amassed these big followings who never would have been able to before the internet because media, when old media had the gatekeeping keys. But what we are seeing is big tech under political pressure from the left, trying to basically ratchet that back and take a more active role in deciding who gets to speak and who gets to not speak in their spaces. So for example, this, the New York Post reported a kind of sketchy story. I mean, it's unconfirmed and they said as much in the story, this is unconfirmed, about corruption in Joe Biden's family. Now, my view is that they should publish the story. Other people should publish criticisms of it. We should debate it and free flow of information and the truth will rise to the top. However, what Twitter and Facebook decided to do was totally ban and throttle the story, ban accounts, including the press secretary of the United States of America uh, for sharing the link. And then even 10 days later, the New York Post is still banned from its whole Twitter account, locked out, even though like not just tweeting that story. This is one of the biggest newspapers in America and they can't tweet out their sports stories they're banned. I mean, so it, it's really unprecedented in slap in the face to journalism. I mean, for, for, forget how obnoxious that behavior is towards journalists. It, it's also pretty insulting to ordinary Americans because I right. daily read stories and I look at them and I think, hmm, I, I think the journalist is putting two and two together and making five. But that's because we... We, we should, as individuals, be trusted to form an opinion and to draw our own conclusions. The, the idea that we have to have some sort of ban on, on hearing um, half-baked stories because we can't work out for ourselves that they may be half-baked, it, it's yeah. very insulting to individual Americans. Well, it's basically a bunch of elites in Silicon Valley saying, oh, no, no, the, two, the silly American people might they might be persuaded by this. We can't let them see that. Uh, so it's really offensive. And it also doesn't work. So it's condescending and offensive, but it also doesn't work. I mean, Twitter, look, I work in conservative media, so I saw firsthand this story when it first broke. And then I watched after Twitter banned it, it blew up exponentially because Twitter banned it. This is what we call the Streisand effect after this old story with Barbara Streisand, where she tried, she sued a photographer who, about photos over her and made them much more famous in the process, right? And so this, the same thing has happened with this story where what was just, a, you know, another story turned into the front page story on every newspaper and on every Fox News show because they tried to suppress it. So big tech, they got to get their head on straight because they're doing dumb things, wrong things, they're not working, and they're inviting regulatory and big government attacks on big tech that would be really bad news. I was going to press you on that. What should our view be? Because I'm, I, I, I have sympathy for people who say, look, big tech is such a, in such a privileged position, it's misusing this, we need some sort of regulatory oversight. But I know how big government works. If you try to create some sort of regulatory oversight, you're never going to actually achieve the competition of opinion and democratization of opinion that you want. All you're going to do is end up with um, the, the sort of institutionalization of 
big tech bias. What, what should we do about it? Should we just shrug our shoulders and say, do you know what? Let's all migrate to social media platforms that treat individuals with respect. What, what's the answer? No, it's not as simple as that. From the free market perspective, we have to be able to say that things are bad, but doesn't mean government will be better. So big tech censorship is bad. It is wrong. I don't like it. Uh, but there's things we can do about it outside of having the government take over. So for example, Twitter banned this New York Post link and there was massive outcry. Now they've come out and said, that was a mistake. We won't ban links anymore. That was because of consumer pushback, not because of the government. And so that's the kind of thing we can do. We can, we can migrate to alternative social media platforms. I, I made an account on Parler, a Twitter alternative that's growing. But I will say that's hard because of the network effect. Yeah. Social media companies, it's really hard to be a competitor and to get going. Yeah. Um, so that's not a super promising avenue. Like you, I moved to Parler. But as I did so, I, I was a little bit worried because I want to be able to persuade people who don't think the way I do and who don't exactly. see the world the way I do of my point of view. And I want to learn from them. And I fear that if we create a social media platform for people who think the way I do and a social media platform for the woke mob, it's, it's, <laughs> not gonna, it's not gonna help civic society. It's not gonna work. I agree with you. Uh, and that's why I think the best option is to stay and pressure and fight and use our influence as consumers. So like, for example, conservatives and non-liberals are like the biggest audience on Facebook. So there's only so much Facebook can do to censor before they have to respond to people. I mean, they are a business, they respond to consumers. But to talk about the government side of things, Basically, there's two, two or three different proposals that people have, have said, oh, let's punish big tech censorship. All of them are bad ideas, and we can kind of break them down, but the most prominent one is repeal Section 230. Section 230 is the liability shield that gives tech platforms liability uh, protections for the content that's posted on their platform. A funny way to think of it is there was this reporter who got um, in trouble for being uh, on a work Zoom call. And the question is, should Zoom be liable for that or should he be liable for that? Section 230 makes him liable for that, not Zoom. And it's the same thing with Twitter. When I tweet something, I'm liable for it, not Twitter. If they didn't have that protection, they wouldn't be able to exist. I mean, billions of pieces of content are posted. They couldn't vet it all. And they, they, or if they did, they would have to censor a lot more of it. So a lot of conservatives have said, Big tech is rigged, repeal section 230. And I understand where they're coming from, but their idea for a solution is, is bad. The idea, that, the idea that entrepreneurs should be liable for the behavior of um, um, you know, every untrousered um, CNN correspondent, it's <laughs> not a great idea. <laughs> I agree. And the other proposal is that allow them to keep the proposal, but the, the protections, but insert a requirement for political neutrality and have the federal government determine whether these platforms are being neutral or not. Now this, I understand the appeal of it because it sounds great in principle, but you have to think about the fact that it's not always going to be people who see eye to eye with us who are running the Federal Communications Commission. In fact, in less than two years, it could be Kamala Harris running it. And so I don't want the feds to come in and get to be the referee and decide who is biased and who is not and who has to be banned from social media and who is not. For example, I mean, bizarrely, the left actually thinks social media is biased in favor of conservatives. 
Now, they're totally wrong about that, but that's what they think. So there's, there's no way you could have some sort of objective consensus or fair enforcement. I it think you be, gotta let the market, you gotta let be, the market do it. It would be like inviting George III to give a fair account of the American Revolution. <laughs> it wouldn't work. It wouldn't. Right. Federal government cannot possibly be trusted to define what is and what isn't an objective balanced point of view. And we, we actually had something similar in the US in the past. We had something called the Fairness Doctrine that, that tries to enforce on old school media um, fairness requirements. And only once it was repealed did conservative voices uh, blow up on talk radio and create a massive influence on the radio waves because the Fairness Doctrine was enforced to prevent them from doing so. So we should not repeat that mistake, even if Twitter and Facebook keep doing dumb stuff. I, I was amused to discover recently that Facebook um, relies for advice on how to engage with the political class by employing um, a former failed deputy British Prime Minister, Nick Clegg. <laughs> I, I think the last joke must be on Mr. Zuckerberg. The, the idea that Mr. Clegg has anything of value to to, 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 to add to how Facebook is run, I, I personally found very amusing. But anyway, um, each to their own. Um, now, I'm a huge fan of closer trade relations between the US and the UK, and I'm a huge fan of American imports. I, um, I buy all sorts of American things because I, I tend to love American products. But there's one American import that I really wish we hadn't uh, brought into the UK, and that is this whole debate about intersectionalism and what you might call this this political correct um, agenda that I think was in a sense born on American university campuses a generation ago and people like me felt that actually it was ridiculous and silly and would eventually fizzle out on the contrary we couldn't have been more wrong it, it's it's come back um, in a really quite virulent and, and nasty form um, what, what do you, what do you, you think is going to happen in America? I mean, can the American Republic and American exceptionalism survive this attack by extremists who, who repudiate the very notion of American exceptionalism? Yeah, it's a good question because I was kind of in the same boat. I thought, oh, that's just crazy people on campus. But now we've seen it spread to the highest levels of media. The New York Times is run by a woke mob. Uh, they, they say conservative op-eds make black people feel unsafe, um, and then they try to get people fired. We've seen it rise to the highest levels of government. Joe Biden has says he will only pick a black woman for Supreme Court. Whites need not apply. Men need not apply. Even black men need not apply. And listen, I think black women, many are, I'm sure, are qualified and would be great. The point is that's anti-American to be limiting your political choices to someone's race. It's tokenistic. Also, also, it's reductionist. Imagine, imagine a scenario where he gets to make that appointment and he then appoints that individual. Would we regard that individual as worthy of that high office on her? Oh, no. Or would Even we regard she... it as tokenism? It's, a, it's an insane position. I mean, even if she was qualified, she'd never be viewed as such because she was selected in such a tokenistic manner. And that would be Joe Biden's fault. So uh, that's what I'm saying. It's escaped the campuses and it's at the highest levels of our politics and our government and our 
uh, media, and that's why it's really disturbing. The only thing I'll say is that I think that can only be defeated by the left, right? Conservatives reject that, and moderates reject that. But what, that what has to happen, and we've started to see some of this, is the left itself. And, and they keep getting eaten by their own rules. At some point, they have to reject it to get it out of, uh, under control. So for example, you saw a, lep a letter in Harper's Magazine that was signed by liberal and left-wing luminaries like Noam Chomsky, repudiating cancel culture and, and woke illiberalism. And they got a lot of backlash for it, but they also started a lot of conversations. And I think it has to come from them. I don't think conservatives are ever going to be able to persuade leftists to not be illiberal identitarians. I think it's gonna to have to be the center left and the left that's gonna to have to fight and root out this illiberalism it, on its it, own. It, it's fascinating you say that because during the whole Brexit debate in this country, I used mm -hmm. to argue with fellow Brexiteers and I used to suggest that what we needed to do was to win over non-traditional Brexit supporters. And to do that, you needed people on the left who would give people on the left permission to come around to our point of view. And, and you needed to be quite subtle about it. Instead of, instead of being tribal about it, you needed to actually look for allies outside your traditional political zone and, and encourage them, encourage them to come forward and, and to express their, 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 their alternative point of view to the left. So that's fascinating that you said. No, I agree. So, I mean, that's unfortunately, that's just how humans work. We're open to being persuaded by people who we view as on our team. And so I can give you a good personal example of this. So I'm gay and I believe broadly in kind of coexistence and, and freedom for all LGBT people. And conservatives in America have come a long way on believing that, but some still don't. Or some still have partially views about it that I think are wrong they're often many more, more times willing to listen to me, maybe change their view because they know I'm a conservative, I believe in limited government, low taxes, I don't believe in woke madness, and I can persuade them. Whereas a democratic activist is never going to talk to them because that, they'll talk past them. That, that actually speaks exactly to my experience. As a member of the British Parliament, I started off rather skeptical about the idea of, of equal marriage and I I remember mm -hmm. being slightly slightly sort of taken aback when I would get lectures from people telling me that I must support it and yet when I came across conservatives who said you know what actually the argument for this is a good conservative libertarian argument that's what changed my mind not not being exactly. hectic, but being persuaded yeah it's, it's a very it's a very powerful point because you can't insult someone into agreeing with you. So for example, the left-wing activist would just say, you're an evil bigot if you don't agree with us and bow to us. Whereas I would say, listen, we have shared values on X, Y, and Z. Here's why those values also apply on this issue. We believe in freedom, right? We believe in the freedom of speech. We believe in the freedom of religion. That should include the freedom of marriage, to marry whoever you want in, in, in terms of the government. Um, and so that's how you can persuade people by establishing common ground. And that's why, that's why you have a need for coalitions like this in order to change hearts and minds. I would say that one of the reasons why the United States has been phenomenally successful as a republic, you know, the, the most successful republic to have ever existed, I was gonna say since, since Rome, but I, I think the American Republic way exceeds uh, the achievements of, of even Rome 
it, it's because in America, it's personal character that defines your future and your progression and your trajectory. But the, the, the woke agenda is about inherent characteristics defining who you are and where you're going. And it, it seems that, that that's just incompatible with the notion of the American Republic as, as, as we've known it. Um, right. Do you, do you think that, you know, I mean, one of the weaknesses of the woke movement is that they are advocating something that I think could be exposed as being phenomenally unpopular. I think the, the found, foundational principles of, uh, uh, on which America is built are popular. Uh, do you think we, we, we need to do a better job of making a younger generation, perhaps a, a generation that's read too many books by people like Howard Zinn, aware of quite how exceptional and, and, and unique America is? Um, and, and how can we do that? Yeah, we definitely do. We definitely have failed to reach young people. And part of that is because of rhetorical failures. Um, and part of that is because of outdated views on some issues. But I think it's just important to realize that the great thing about America has always been its commitment to individual liberty, individualism, and like you said, meritocracy, the American dream. Now, we haven't always lived up to those principles, obviously, but we've gotten closer and closer to them over time. Mm -hmm. And those are the principles that we all believe in or believed in. Whereas woke, wokeism is almost kind of Calvinist in the sense that it believes in like predestined based on indeterminate characteristics, right? It really is a religion and it's a religion with no chance for salvation. No You're a white man. Yeah. You have in it, you're inherently privileged and racist just by the virtue of your being. And that is not a, a, a position that can ever have reconciliation or coexistence or progress. It's a very regressive vision that might advance them politically. Mm -hmm. It might stir up motions for their movement, but it's not advancing America to a post-race or to a post-um bigotry society if anything it's reinforcing old group divides but just flipping the switch on them and i think people need to be persuaded about that but part of the problem is that i think in america conservatives will flip to the opposite extreme and then they lose touch with young voters so it's not okay they argue america is an evil uh systemically racist society republicans will will say no there's no racism racism doesn't exist Truth is not quite that, right? So, and you lose touch and credibility with young voters when you say, nope, all cops are great. Police brutality doesn't exist. The truth is that the left's narratives are far exaggerated and not always supported by the facts, but there are some injustices and you have to, you have to get real with people and meet them where they are. Uh, and, and so I think that's where we fail on the American right. I, I, I wonder if part of the problem is also that people who, who don't appreciate the achievements of the American Republic, it's not just that they don't know much about history, they don't know much about the rest of the world. Take, for example, the question of police brutality. Clearly, I think there are examples in America's recent past of, of shocking police brutality, a, a very militarized police force that has sometimes behaved beyond what should be lawfully acceptable. But, but look at what's happening this very week in Nigeria. Millions of Nigerians are rebelling against what they see as an overbearing, arbitrary, aggressive, militarized police force. So, you know, it, it's, it's, there's something not just American about um, heavy handed, aggressive policing. Middle class people around the world 
want to be treated by their police force with respect as, 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 as citizens and, and, and not presumed by authorities and officialdom to, to, to automatically be treated as, as a wrongdoer. Um, again, when I hear people criticizing America as racist, of, of, of course, there have been um, some extraordinary historic examples of, of racism. Slavery was, was only abolished um, 140 something years ago. But at the same time, countries around the world had a system of serfdom or, or slavery until really relatively recently too. So it, it seems to me that much of this criticism directed at America is by people who, who don't really know much about the world or world history or current affairs around the world. And so they're, they're singling America out for an unrealistically harsh assessment and judgment. And I, 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 I think perhaps if they knew a little bit more about the rest of the world and about global history, they would recognize America as being truly exceptional. There's a reason why, you know, I grew up in, in a small country in, in Central Africa and I was back there recently and I, I noticed that the young lads, um, you know, these are kids without much money at all. Mm. The baseball caps they wore were New York Yankee baseball caps. The music they listened to was inspired by American rap. It wasn't, it wasn't English rock and roll they were listening to. It wasn't um, Essex Cricket Club or Chelsea Football Club that they were emulating. It was America. There's something about America that has a global appeal. And I... I I wish Americans would appreciate that because, you know, I, I think America is a, a uniquely special country and there's a reason why the crowds in Tehran and the crowds around the world look to America as the great hope. It, it, it really is a, a, a shining city on a hill still. Um, and satellite TV means that um, the American um, lifestyle and the American exceptionalism can be seen by tens of millions of people around the world, if not always appreciated by the woke mob in Portland, Oregon. Right, I agree with you. And it's not just an understanding of global history, but even an understanding of American history. To use a slightly different example, the most prominent LGBT rights group in America, the Human Rights Campaign, is a very left-wing group. It's like a front of the Democratic Party. They have said that President Trump, who entered office supportive of gay marriage, is and this is a quote, the most anti-LGBTQ president in American history. They have literally said that President Trump is more anti-gay than 1820s era presidents. Like they're just totally out of touch with reality. And I think we have to say the same is true kind of across the board in that I think there is obviously a problem with police brutality. I mean, George Floyd, the video was very disturbing, but when you look at the actual numbers, I mean, less than 10 people a year are killed, uh, unarmed black males are killed by police. That's bad, every one of those is, is potentially an injustice, but we gotta put things in context. I mean, how many thousands of people die every day, every single day from car accidents? Like, and that's out of millions and millions of police interactions with, with the individuals. So we have to, I, I think there's just a, a lack of context and appreciation and historical and factual, kind of context that people miss on these things because in a narrative is easier to sell uh, when, when you're just focusing on identity and you're focusing on oppression and you're telling people things aren't their fault and they have an enemy to blame for all their problems. It's enticing, but it's fundamentally dishonest. 
I, I'm, I'm an optimist when I look at America. I, I remember in the 1970s, people used to say, America's finished, America's got problems, America's coming apart. You never succeed by betting against America. I, I suspect that, you know, in 20, 30, 40 years time, America will still be um, leading the way economically and culturally and, and socially and politically. Um, um, Brad, it's been wonderful talking to you. Um, well done for all that you're doing to fight the good fight. We do, I think, desperately need on both sides of the Atlantic what you might call a, a new generation of Milton Friedmans, people going out there and popularizing the moral case for the free market. What, what Milton Friedman did with books and uh, long-form documentaries 30 years ago, 40 years ago, you are now doing online with Fee very effectively. So keep up the good work. And um, it's lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for coming on. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Oh.